Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer Irvin Welsh. When he published Trainspotting in the early 90s, Irvin became a spokesperson for a generation. His books were a funny and brutal depiction of young working class people and introduced us to a set of characters that have become as familiar to us as old friends over the years, Renton, Sick Boy, Spud and Begbie. He's since expanded his worldview over the years with a prolific output of all sorts of different novels, most recently The Long Knives, which is the second in his crime series. Although he became famous for a colourful and hilarious celebration of hedonism, his books are also poignant and sympathetic portrayals of addiction and the struggle working class men have with their feelings and their mental health. He's a personal hero of mine. I really love his writing so much and I was excited and privileged to welcome him onto the podcast this week. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Irvin, welcome to The Reset. Thank you. We talk about mental health on this podcast. You've been writing about mental health your whole career, really, men and mental health. It's just that it wasn't phrased or framed in that way, was it, when when your books first came out? No, I mean, there has been a kind of... um, There has been a revolution about uh, men opening up, and particularly men from traditional backgrounds opening up and talking about um, how they feel about kind of mental health issues like anxiety, depression, kind of suicide, all these things kind of that were were very much taboo in the past and now opened up. And um, it's interesting. It's been an interesting change for me because um, to to be able to, I mean, I, I didn't really see myself as writing about um, about mental health or mental dysfunction, but. Uh, you realise when you start to um, when you start to write, you realise how much um, of uh, a character's kind of behaviour is influenced by their, their mental health and by the sort of, um, in many cases, by the traumas that they've experienced in the past. Yeah, um, uh, one of my favourite books of yours is Skag Boys because it's a, you know a pretty deep look into those characters from Trainspotting that we already knew about. But it delves very deep into effectively the roots of of their addiction, um, which I think is really interesting because we all learn, any of us who've been through recovery, that all of the bad habits that we fell into that almost destroyed us, a lot of it is just rooted in the trauma of our past. So you, you dug quite deep into that in Skag Boys, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think what what um, you know, something like Renton, you know, you can kind of um, you can other you can show a lot of different things. You know, you can show that. Um, you know, when he had the the, the injury at uh, Orgreave, he had the sort of um, he, he had the you know the, the you've got the the, phys- the the physical pain and how the, the way that so many people have used heroin to treat physical pain. Um, you've got the sort of um, you've got the kind of symbiotic relationship with Sick Boy, which is kind you know which is which I don't think either of them would have become. Um, uh, heroin addicts, if they hadn't met each other and had this kind of thing, this kind of energy between them, you know. So all these different um, things, kind of, um, and you know, and his kind of his political displacement about being this intellectual, this working class intellectual, and sort of, um, you know, so all the all these things kind of contribute. Um, you look at Begbie, you know, he's had his, his issues with his grand, with his his. He's kind of grandparent, and he's had the issues with violence in the family and all this sort of stuff. So you're looking at um, you're looking at all these things basically. But I don't do it in a kind of um, I don't do it in a way that I, I sort of have to box tick kind of all the, mm. the things of cause and effect. I mean, um, 
you know, with crime now, I'm writing about Lennox's past trauma as is um a victim of abuse and, and how that influenced has uh, influenced his life. Uh, so I mean, I think you, you try to draw the character, you try to draw the character as um in such a complex way as possible. But what you can't really do, I don't think, is is you're not a you're not a kind of clinical um psychologist or psychoth or, or psychotherapist or you can't make snap judgments um about what is kind of um you know what is making somebody like kind of the the way they are or behaving the way they are all you can do is offer certain kind of clues um and try to create a kind of um miasma of uh, of emotions and feelings and uh and life events that have affected that character um uh, and of course, you know these characters. Are, I guess are largely based on just people that you know, that you've encountered, that you've seen. So rather than sort of, you know, do it in that academic way, you presumably the sort of addicts that you've known, or you know, characters like Lennox, the people who have these sort of, you know, these pr problematic personalities, they are almost always from a background that has obviously sort of hurt or traumatized them. There's always something, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's is uh, in a lot of cases it's um it's a result of the choices that you make. You know, when you're, um, I mean, we're we're all going to have kind of um pressures in our life. You know, we're going to have sort of um things that have happened to us in the past. We're going to have things that are um we're going to have things like you know uh kind of relationship breakdown and divorce. We're going to have bereavements. We're going to have all these things to deal with. You know, and and what I've kind of found you know, my own experience um. But then again, you know, because I don't really, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I've not had any kind of deep-seated kind of childhood trauma of kind of uh, abuse or post-traumatic stress disorder or anything like that to kind of um, contend with. So you have a level of abstract, you know, you can abstract to an extent. Mm. Um, but I think, but you, you, you kind of, you're more aware that you actually do have choices. So, you know, if, um, if my girlfriend walks out of me or if... Um, if uh, somebody close to me dies, um, you know, I think, well, I'm overwhelming urges to kind of go to the pub and just drink and myself into a stupor and then do loads of coke and then move move on, from, you know. But it, I know now, you know, that that isn't going to help me. That's the last thing that I would do, you know. So I think that there's a certain age thing, there's a certain wisdom thing, there's a certain kind of experience thing that you that you learn. Um, um, and... Uh, but I think if you have deep-seated fundamental traumas, that that um, and I think these th these things are, are very very triggering, and, you, and you're propelled into kind of repeating these past sort of um, kind of narratives in a way. Um, I also think it's like it's kind of very easy for me to talk because I've got a kind, I've got, I have money, I have a career, and you see that so many people. Uh, who have uh, mental health problems, who are making it worse through kind of drug abuse, through drink abuse, they don't really have anywhere else to go. You know, mm. there is no career, there is no there is no path, basically, or they don't see any path. So drinking drugs can win by default in that situation. Do you think that, you know, the, the people say we're now in a mental health epidemic, you know, blokes under 45, the stats on suicide and stuff like that are, are, are so... Huge, which is you know the, the sort of demographic that has often been your audience and also your subject matter. Do you think a lot of that well, is driven by like this sort of the stage of capitalism we're in, and you know just yeah, the I mean, economic landscape? 
I mean, I don't think neoliberalism is good for our mental health. And I think mm. we've also, we've created the zoo that doesn't work for us. You know, it's like the, we're like the polar bears in the zoo just walking around in the cage going slowly mental because um, I think that um, if you look at the, you know, the, the, if you look at kind of um, our feudal society, then our industrial society, uh, you've had a fairly, you know, with the division of labour and people moving into towns and stuff like you, you've had a fairly ossified kind of life for a few hundred years, and that's all breaking down now, you know? So people are kind of untethered, they're unmoored, they're unsure of their position. They have this angst about kind of species survival, how we're going to survive with all these things that are happening to us, the collapse of the financial system, climate change and all that. So existentially, we don't know what kind of future there is for us. Um, We've defined ourselves in an industrial society by paid work. We don't have that anymore. Um, we're, or we're moving out of that kind of world. Uh, and that's how, by, whereby we assess ourselves and we assess our value, we assess our worth as, as people in the, in, in the community by what we did and how, you know, so that, and how much we were paid and what, when we were paid and all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of gone now, you know, that, that's, that's going out. So we have this crisis, like, you know, what are we actually here for, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's really what my kind of writing, I think, is about. It's about that... Um, collapse of paid work and about people asking that question, what are we actually here for? And I don't think um, we've come up with any satisfactory answers to that now because the transition that we're going through is so rapid that um, the status quo changes, the ground shifts around us so quickly. So it's very, I mean, that that is not, you know, that, that lack of stability isn't good for people's mental health, particularly when they don't have the economic tools, the social ammunition to fight against all this stuff. Uh, you know, I also, I mean, I'm I'm not religious myself, but seems to me, and I always used to be quite cynical about religion. But when you talk about the gap that we have because of economic, you know, uh, factors in terms of meaning for our life, religions collapsed at the same time. So people don't even have that. At least used to give people some other semblance of meaning, didn't it? Yeah, I think because I think the reason that religions collapsed is because religions tied into kind of hierarchical organisations and all hierarchical organisations, which is nearly them all, um, have been crumbling and the kind of, you know, and their credibility has been crumbling and kind of sort of, um, sort of uh, you know, this post-imperial kind of era we're into as well. You know, so but I think that, um, I think there is, a, there is a, a kind of growing awareness that we're kind of spiritual creatures as well as kind of physical creatures. And we have this... Um, we have this rich in our life, and um, I think a lot of the ideals of the sixties, you know, the um, the kind of acid, kind of Timothy Leary ideas, the um, the you know the Terence McKenna stuff, the, the DMT kind of coming of age. I think there, there, you know, the all this you know proliferation of the kind of you know ayahuasca ceremonies and the use of kind of um, hallucinogenic drugs, people microdosing, and uh, you know. So I think that you know there is something that's kind of come along to replace that, and it's something mm. a lot more kind of um, democratic and a lot more kind of real, I think, as well. Eh? Um, what about your own hedonism? You know, we talked about it being linked for a lot of people to trauma or some sort of an emotional escape, but from this, the interviews I've seen you do over the years, it, it feels like it was much more. You would you would just. You know, it was it was much less deep than that. It's much more just about the pursuit of pleasure, and you you didn't sort of let it kind of become some sort of emotional crutch. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I mean, I've I really I've liked to have a good time, and I've liked to experiment, I've liked to move into different scenes. But I think that um, 
when something becomes a full-time job, you know, I mean, when I, when I was a heroin addict, I thought uh, I stumbled into it, kind of because I just threw the folks, I tried every other drug, and I thought, this is actually quite shit now, you know, I'm not really enjoying this anymore, why am I doing this? Um, so I think you have to have, you have to have things that, you know, even though it's, a, it's an addictive drug, you have to have things that are driving you, you know, you have to have that trauma in the past, you have to have this kind of horrible thing that's kind of, um, that's making you want to stick with this, you know, mm. because it's not, it's not, you know, it's not tenable, you know, unless you're, unless you're carrying a lot of pain and you're using it to get away from that pain and neutralize that pain, or you haven't got anything to move on to, it's very, very difficult to stay in that position. You know, it's like there is a, I mean, you never really hear about people who have kind of, um, who have stopped doing that, but there's so many people that have experimented with drugs, with hardcore drugs, and I've just got to a point where they thought, this isn't really me, you know, this is not really what, it's not really doing me any good, it's not adding to me in any way, it's depleting me. And in that situation, you know, you only, you, you have to move on, you know, you, there's no way you can stay in that in that place. But at that but, stage in your life, did you have a life worth escaping, to getting back to? Because most people are just escaping yeah, from a I shit mean, life. Well, that's it. You know, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I, and, and some, to some extent, um, when I was in that position, I kind of didn't, but I could envisage how I would have a better life. You know, I did have a lot of things that I had a lot of interest. I didn't, you know, they weren't lucrative or weren't working for me. The music I was doing wasn't working out. Um, the, 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 you know, I wasn't kind of, I didn't have a career that um, was, you know, I was working kind of doing crap jobs that were going to go nowhere, but I could envisage the time that I would, this, this would actually improve. You know, I, I believed, always believed that I had the capacity to improve my lot, you know. So so I think that gave me a, 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 a kind of um, an overarching confidence that I would be able to sort of find my way into a better place. You're quite um, a, a rational-minded person, which feels seems like quite a gift because so many of us can have these thoughts, the rational thoughts about what the, the shrewd and, and the wisest decision to make in a situation is but are so often overridden by emotion and impulse. So you, you seem to be someone that has been able to sort of always kind of, even when you get yourself in trouble, make a sort of a rational strategize how to get out of it or make the right decision. Well, I mean, I think you can, uh, you know, I've been fortunate because I have had my fingers burned and all that. You dive into a situation and you can't always kind of get out of it immediately, you know, but I think it's like... Uh, I do have a kind of awareness when something has gone bad. You know what I mean? Something mm. is starting to go bad. I think this is the time to leave now. You know, it's like, it's, um, I always say uh, to my girlfriend, you know, it's like, this is the time to leave the party, you know, and if we go to a, a night out or a party or something, we go out with friends and all that, and it's really great buzzing, you're having a laugh, I'll say, let's leave now because that's the time when you, when you should go because A, it's not going to get any better. B, you wait till it gets bad, you take the bad time with times with you onto the next place. Mm. So I've always been quite sensitive to that. You know, it's like um uh it's you know, but you know, it's like you kind of um you can't be too um self-congratulatory about that because kind of pride comes before a fall. And if you move into a new scenario, you're always likely to kind of tear the arse out of it a bit. But I think when you learn something's not working, you know, when it isn't working, then there's no point in repeating it. You know, I mean, there's mm. there's loads and loads and loads of mistakes to, to make in life, but making the same ones again and again is the most disparaging thing you can do. So there has to be amount an amount of um, self awareness and reflection and and the ability to kind of move on. I think. 
Do you, have you ever suffered with things like depression, anxiety, or, or anything like that on any level? I mean, obviously, as a writer, it's quite a solitary pursuit. There's a, a, a lot of there can be bruises to your ego. There are highs and lows. It's a minefield that your line of work. How do you deal with that? I think because it's not something I've always wanted to do. I mean, I've always wanted to do music and it never worked out. And it's Kenny, I'm doing it, I'm doing it a bit more now again. But and I've always wanted to write. And you know, that that has worked out for me. So you do have the affirmation of not not just something working out in pain, which is great, but you have the affirmation of actually finding something that you like doing. You know, I really love kind of I love writing. I love I love keeping fit. I love going to the gym and all that. So I've kind of so any any compulsive obsession obsessive stuff that I have, I try to kind of reconfigure it in the things that are going to do me good, basically, you know, and uh, that I'm going to get some payback from. Um, and I think you can, you can change, you you, you can sort of um, you can take something that um, I mean, you know, it's like I mean, I see kind of um, I mean, I've. I've I know they're very different things, but the way I try to think about, um, you know, anxiety, I have to try to think about it as excitement. You know, you're anxious about something because you're excited about it. You know, lean into that sense of excitement. You know, mm. lean into that kind of challenge of kind of if it's going in a room full of new people, this is fucking great. Lean into that challenge and just kind of you know and, and enjoy it. Enjoy what they've got to say. Enjoy listening to them. Um, and I see depression as kind of boredom. You know, it's like uh, if you know if you're feeling a bit bored or fed up find something that you're interested in and find something to do, you know, and that, that, that's the way that, and I realise that, you know, when I'm saying this, I've probably not been troubled with anxiety or depression, you know, probably, you know, I haven't suffered. I mean, I was kind of, um, I had a long-term relationship with someone who really suffered um, from from depression and, um, and it, they, you know, it's like, um, you know, they, they used to say to me, you know, why, the, you know, I know he's a at me that you're so upbeat all the time like you know and i'm saying well you know it's, i can't really help it you know because you know it's, i've just got maybe just got a different set of chemicals swishing around in my head than you have you know i can't help where you are you know you i mean I, I don't choose to be this way anyway you know because you know any any more than you choose to be that way in some ways i'm fortunate that i have a, a leg up with the actual disposition and i think that there is a sort of um there is a kind of endogenous kind of thing. There is a kind of, you know, there is an endogenous element to it. I think most of it is exogenous to do with your, how you relate to your environment. But I think there also is an endogenous way. Um, and you either have an advantage or a disadvantage by what you actually have switching around inside you. But obviously that can change. You know, we get older and our, our body chemistry changes. And we have kind of all sorts of changes in life. You know, so you can't be complacent about that. But I've been incredibly fortunate um, with my physical, you know, and mental health, and I've, I've not always um, treated it with respect. I have played hard and fast with it, and I do appreciate that I've kind of, um, I've kind of been, I've got out of jail um, a lot of times, and I also kind of appreciate that um, other people who haven't kind of um, pushed the boat out as much as me have run into some terrible problems. Um, that. You talked at the beginning about like I can't remember the phrase you used, but you know ordinary blokes. How much is class a, a factor in you know men and mental health and their ability to open up? Because the sort of characters that you write about, mostly from working class backgrounds, a lot of them hard men. Um, 
the last thing you can imagine is them showing vulnerability or, or opening up. Is it, is it been, is it a class or a cultural thing? Definitely, definitely. I think it's, I mean, I think it does affect, um, it does affect middle-class and upper-class men too. I mean, there is a step up a lip thing and all that, kind of don't show your emotions and all, you know, and the whole, it's engendered by the whole public school thing and, and uh, too, you know. So it's not just a working-class thing, but it is very, um, it's, a, it's a thing that's very difficult for men to deal with. And I mean, I had, um, uh, just not, not that long ago, I was out with a really good friend and uh, I've known him since, since um I was 12 and he's a hard guy. He's a tough guy, you know, and, you know, and he's like, um, and he was just, he's had a lot of um, setbacks and issues and all that. And he, and we we're sitting in the pub and he actually started to cry. And I just couldn't, you know, and, you know, and, and I'm reasonably aware about these things, probably more than most people from my background, but I just couldn't handle it. I just kind of culturally, it just evoked a lot of things in me and I couldn't handle him being like that. So we just, instead of actually talking to him about the the issues that he's been having, and all I could say was, come on, have another drink, mate. Come on, never mind. You know, it'll be all right. Yeah. And it was the, the classic kind of response, which is the worst fucking thing that you can yeah. actually do, you know? Um, so I feel quite kind of um, shamed by that, really, that I didn't, I wasn't able to, um, to sort of, um, to connect properly and to kind of properly assist, but... There's just some kind of incredible social awkwardness that came that I was aware manifested between us, you know, about uh, this, about seeing them in this way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think most blokes have been through that with a mate and then walked away with deep regret about it and replayed yeah, yeah. those, those but, moments because it's not you don't want to. It's just you, we don't yeah, have the a lot. A lot of lads from sort of normal backgrounds, we just don't have the um, vocabulary for it. Yeah, the emotional vocabulary mm. is kind of gone, and it's like. Uh, and it's, it's it's such a, a weird thing because I kind of, in the abstract, I know exactly what to do. You know, I say let's you know I should have said something like let let's not have a, let's not drink anymore, mate. Come back to my house. I'll make a cup of tea. Sit down. Uh, just tell me what's going on with you. You know, and let let them, you know, let somebody like talk and then just listen and all that. You know, and I know all that. But the emotional sabotage kind of jumped into me then, and I couldn't internalize that emotion at the time. I was just swamped with this tension that I don't want to be sitting here. I don't want him to be like that. I want to be numb from this experience that I'm having with this person. You know, mm. he's another drink. Yeah. Also, hanging out with mates, you just want it to be fun because we all have quite stressful lives. You know, there's a lot of shit in life, so you meet up with a mate, and actually, a lot of the time, you're just thinking, right. This is the part of my life where I can just switch off and have a laugh and take the piss and drink or whatever. And so when a mate suddenly pulls the rug from under you, you're like, "What the fuck's this?" You know. Yeah. I suppose that's different for women generally, isn't it? Because they they set the emotional exchange as part of their friendship. Yes, I mean it's like you know what, whenever I kind of. Um... When, you know, every time in my life I've had a, had a bad time, I've had a relationship breakdown, a bereavement. Uh, if, if I'm in, you know, if I've gone into a, a bad place as a result of something that happened to me, I go straight to my women friends. I don't waste any time talking to uh, guys just for that simple yeah. reason. That it's like, you know, you know, I've, I've chopped out a line. Uh, I've done, um, I've done a sort of, um, you know, I'll put a line for you on the system, have another drink, have a whiskey, have a, you know, it's like, uh, so it's just, you know, it's like, it's nonsense, like, you know, where it's like, um, one of your, you know, like uh, a woman friend or, or just, you know, she'll just 
sit you down, let you talk, listen to you, you know, ask ask you questions, how you feel about things, what you what what you plan to do, uh, what you did the last time, what you're gonna what you're gonna do differently this time. You just get a kind of awareness and an emotional intelligence that you just don't re- really get from guys, or you, or even if guys have that, there's a sabotaging awkwardness that stops that from kind of coming to the fore. Do you think that could be changing? Like, you know, and, and I mean, like, in the sort of community that you're from, do you think people growing up in Leith now might have a little bit more of a an understanding, emotional understanding, emotional vocabulary? Do you think things, for instance, like this phrase, toxic masculinity and stuff, do you think that there might be a chance that this is fading away, even from... I think so. I mean, I, I, think it, I think it is fading away. I think it's related to... Because we're all in a kind of... Um, we're all in a shitstorm and we don't really know where we stand and what we're doing and what is kind of um, the ties of, of the industrial life of all slacking now and we're kind of cast adrift and bouncing around. So all we can really have is each other, you know, and we have to kind of, um, we have to develop our people skills uh, and we, we have to sort of uh, support and look after each other because, you know, I mean, the whole COVID thing brought out the... The, the fact that so many people fall between the, the cracks if we don't have that support network, you know, and we are we are our own support network. I mean, there's not, you know, nobody else is kind of going to help you in your, you know, in your community except your friends. So I think it is incumbent on us all <clears throat> to try to, excuse me, to try to improve, to try and help each other. Um, and we do, we have to take a cue from from our, our women pals. You know, it's yeah. like they're, they're definitely leading the way there, yeah. Just wanted to ask you lastly about, I don't suppose from what you said in this interview, you've ever tried therapy yourself, but I um, I remember reading in The Blade Artist thinking, you know, this this is a story about Begbie seemingly uh, having been rehabilitated and, you know, and, and you're, you lured us into thinking, oh, this is great. He went to prison, he, he, you know, and he discovered the power of creativity and, and you know, I'm bang into all of that stuff and I'm thinking this is such a... And then it turns out, like, you, you know, you pull it from under us because it's like, no, he's still sneaking <laughs> off to beat the shit out of people. Is that just because he's a psychopath who is irretrievably mad? Or is there a bit of cynicism in you about the, think, the power of therapy? Both. And I think but I think there also is a sort of um I think you know, in some ways we're kind of we 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 are we we are we are lazy to an extent, we're embedded into behaviours. And I think we'll, we'll do anything to justify us continuing with these behaviours. We'll go to such convoluted lengths. You know what I mean? We'll go to... If uh, if, if you're an alcoholic, you'll go to such convoluted lengths to rationalise you having a drink, you know? If, mm. You know, it's like kind of... Um, you know, it's like Begbie kind of... His thing, it's not the violence, it's the detection. It's ended up in jail, it's the thing. You know, I still need to have that buzz. Um, it's like, you know... You can, you know, you, you you can know like stockbrokers, investment consultants, and all that. They kind of they know they've got enough money just manipulating these figures and this fiat currency and kind of ripping everybody off. They know they've got all that. They know the one percent people know they've got all that. They know they're actually kind of basically condemning their own children to a horrible life of kind of fear and kind of possible revolution and possible fucking execution and all that. But they can't get off that treadmill. They, they, they can't stop that behaviour, even, even though they know it's dangerous. And this system set up to maintain that behaviour. And that's the problem. We don't, systemically, we've created such a world that kind of, um, that no matter what we kind of think and what we, how we feel that, 
all these negative behaviors that we have are being rewarded by the system, this economic system that we've created. So it's very, very difficult for us to stand outside that system of immediate gratification and we'll put on this kind of superstructure to, to try to justify that. Mm. Uh, is that that's a bleak outlook, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> do, yeah, you, yeah. do you have, I mean, do you have hope for like for, for us? Mean, and... it's, not, it's not, you know, it's not that determined. It's not completely deterministic because I think there are ways to find a way around it. You know, mm. and I think the more these things go into the culture, the more we can embed into the culture. But I, I do think that the economics. Um, the kind of world that we live in financially, economically, is very, very important. I do think that what we've set up is very, very important. The machinery, you know, the technology of it all is very, very important. The whole kind of, um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, we, we talk about like kind of uh, taking back control. We, 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 we tend on Twitter, on our mobile phones, which are bombarding us with algorithms of control all the time, you know. So, it's you know we we are we're part of this kind of um the the tools that we have to kind of um regale against dystopia are actually part of the the issue as well. Mm. Um. Well, Irvin, listen, thank you ever so much. It's a you know great pleasure, great honour to have you on the podcast. I think the stuff that you've written, like I said at the beginning. I think many of us in the nineties, when we were when we were young scallywags, sort of interpret it as, a, as as you know just fun and laughter and partying in your books. And then as I get older and reread them and read the new stuff, you realise all of it actually was about the fucking you know very difficult business of being a human man. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, and so it's, I appreciate it's, that. it's all about our transition into a world without paid work. And what is the purpose of us? That's what we're all mm. asking. Mm. I really appreciate your time, Irvin Welsh. Thanks so much. Nice one. Take care, buddy. There you go, Irvin Welsh, a brilliant writer with an uncanny insight to the male psyche. I got so much out of that chat. I hope you did too. And I can highly recommend his new thriller, The Long Knives, which is out now, and I've put a link to in the bio. If you enjoy this pod, then please consider upgrading to the Reset Extra, which costs a fiver a month and gives you early access to this podcast, plus an extra weekly mental health podcast that's just for paid subscribers. You also get monthly Q&As, discounts on live events and bonus newsletters. And you'll be helping to keep the Reset going with your support too. You can upgrade at samdelaney.substack.com or on my new podcast platform, hubwave.net. Thanks for listening, gang. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.